From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. More than 20 House committee and subcommittee chairs want a, quote, full accounting of the jobs the Trump administration will convert to the new Schedule F. The letter the chair of the Oversight and Reform Committee, Carolyn Maloney, and other House chairs signed also asks 61 agencies to list political appointees who are trying to burrow in at their agencies or who already have. The letter includes a December 9th deadline for agencies to respond. Employees at the Department of Veterans Affairs nursing homes and spinal cord injury centers would be the first to get coronavirus vaccines under a plan in a draft document. The draft government executive obtained says employees are four of the first five categories of people to get the shots VA. Employees in emergency departments, COVID intensive care units and COVID non-intensive care units would be next. The Navy will scrap the amphibious assault ship that burned for four days in San Diego this summer. Rear Admiral Eric, von Eric Verhaeg says repairing the Bonhomme Richard would have cost between two and a half and $3.2 billion and taken five to seven years. Navy Times reports about 60% of the ship would have had to have been replaced. The General Services Administration should be a cabinet-level agency to give it a bigger piece of IT modernization, according to two federal IT veterans, former Environmental Protection Agency CIO Ann Duncan and former CTO Greg Godbout, right for President-elect Biden's transition team, that GSA's next administrator would be well-positioned to serve as a chief operating officer for the federal government. Jonathan Albums, principal data strategist at ServiceNow, he's former chief information officer at the Agriculture Department. Um, Jonathan, welcome back. I said before we went on the air, it is great to see Greg and Ann kind of back in the arena, potentially involved in the president-elect's transition team because they're big thinkers about these things. This is an idea that I haven't seen before. Elevating GSA to a cabinet-level agency I have, but GSA administrator is kind of COO for the government is a fascinating idea, isn't it? I, I agree. Um, I think when you read their paper and you understand what they're going for, whether it's uh, creating, it's, it's moving GSA up or it's it's thinking about, um, you know, government a little differently, what's really important is the idea that there is someone in the federal government at a senior enough level to coordinate all of the very good activities that have sprung up over the past four years. You know, whether it's uh, the Technology Transformation Service, 18F, U.S. Digital Service, Technology Modernization Fund, uh, data strategy. You know, we have had uh, a number of um, innovations and changes that have uh, elevated federal IT modernization and digital transformation. I think the biggest challenge we've, we've had over the past four years is, as these different um, initiatives, capabilities have stood up, is that they're not as well coordinated as they need to be. And that's really what they're talking about here, driving that coordination, which is really key if we want to digitally transform government. The, 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 how, do, how do you reconcile the potential silos between a federal CIO role and what this person would do at the General Services Administration? Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question because it's easy to think that the federal CIO would be doing all of these things today. But when you think about how we're structured in government, you know, we have these silos and uh, sort of built in naturally the way the budgets uh, the way the budget is created and um, how we're, we're we're organized presently so i think we have to do something new 
we have to elevate someone or some uh, create some new position that's able to oversee it all, that is charged with overseeing it all. The federal CIO has a very, um, I think, distinct charge around um, activities at CFO Act agencies and the Office of Management and Budget around um, you know creating budgets and making sure policy is properly uh, integrated. But there's a disconnection at times between other aspects of, of IT modernization and digital transformation. So we have to be very clear with, and be, I think be very intentional about what this role is and what we're trying to um, get out of these various activities. There's a lot here that they're writing about in uh, eight short pages. That's the first step of four they propose, elevating GSA to cabinet level. Um, the second step they write about is inspiring the innovation workforce with presidential leadership fellowship. And we can talk more about that another time because I want to get to the third step, which is another pretty innovative idea. Guide government leaders with the agency transformation playbook. This sounds like the template that agencies have been asking for. You and I discussed this, I think, off the air when you were the CIO at Agriculture. Why isn't there a framework for what agencies should do to move forward on these transformations? This sounds like what they're going for right here. Am I reading it right, Jonathan? I think so. What they're recognizing, very importantly, is that uh, government has a lot of similarities irrespective of the department irrespective of the program and sometimes even irrespective of the level of government. And to the extent that there are um, successful approaches that we've used at different agencies and we can make them uh, you know, so somewhat generic, we can apply them, I think, very successfully in, uh, in other agencies. And the, some, some of these very same techniques have been applied uh, at state governments, they've been applied in uh, local governments, they've been, been applied at the private sector. So it's understanding them and thinking about how they apply to the big challenging topics that we have in front of us as a government. You know, the, the new administration is gonna come in with some huge challenges around um, pandemic, whether it is uh, an additional uh, relief bill or it's uh, simply getting people back into offices safely uh, or the vaccine distribution. There's a lot of complexity in, in these different endeavors. And to the extent that we're able to um, use an approach to, to that's been successful before to um, manage uh, logistics, which is what the vaccine distribution is, or to, to manage the workflows that are required to bring people back into an office safely. If there's an approach that's been proven and we can apply it to these hard problems, I think we take a uh, dramatic step forward and we're gonna be more successful uh, as we approach these things, because we're not going to be starting from scratch. And and I think, if anything, it's the idea, what I really like about their ideas is that we're not starting from scratch. We're, we're building on what's been accomplished over the prior four years, which, you know, was built, th th these these accomplishments were built on the prior eight years. Um, so there, there, we have a good history in the federal government, I believe, of, uh, of not starting um, at the beginning when we get a new administration. There's a recognition that the good work can be built upon and we can use it to drive digital transformation across government. We have about a minute left, Jonathan, and that is exactly the point of the fourth of four steps they're proposing. A transformation advisory board, they say, to ensure continuity in the transition of those ideas. What would that look like in your view? Well, I think you have to be able to have a group that's going to continue irrespective of the administration, so, uh, a group of very senior and experienced um, policy officials, but also people that have been through the implementation of government programs successfully in the past, who, who can think about the future and can lay out plans that take uh, five years, 
10 years to implement and do things along the way every year to prove that uh, we're going to be successful over time. I think that if you're able to establish that board and you can make it as nonpartisan as possible with a recognition that these are long-term endeavors, the digital transformation of the federal government is something that we have to be focused on now and well into the future. With that kind of charge, you can create an environment where people are constantly pushing forward as opposed to move forward a little bit. Now let's wait and see what the next administration does, move forward a little bit. And that start and stop can be very disruptive. And that's what we really need to move away from as we push forward into uh, this next administration, in my opinion. Jonathan Album, thanks very much as always. Great to see you. Thanks so much. Up next, resiliency in government and the private sector. Straight ahead on Government Matters, which resilience lessons stick after the pandemic and which fade away? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Everyone's adapted everything this year, public sector and private sector, business models and personal lives because of the coronavirus. With vaccines coming within the next several months, leaders across government are starting to think hard about what comes next. Tony Towns Whitley is president of U.S. regulated industries at Microsoft. Tony, we talked about resiliency last time you were on the program, and I wanted to have you come back because of this vaccines issue, not because I think that you're an expert in that area, but my fear is that people start to think, all right, February, March, April, we all get vaccines. We push into the spring, early summer, and everything's going to go back to normal, and we don't have to think about this stuff anymore. That's wrong, isn't it? No, I, I would say that we've got a new normal, and we're all trying to determine what it is, and we pretty much have seen that it will include some form of remote hybrid workplace that we're gonna to have to think about how we run missions uh, differently in government. We've learned a lot over the last nine months about resiliency. And I think that's sort of almost the code word for the new way we talk about agility, security, and how to manage through a crisis. I think resiliency is now going to become the way we look at assessing our capabilities to go forward. What do you think the most important components of that idea of resiliency are for an organization in the public sector? Well, look, I think, what we've learned is that the pandemic has taught us that no agency is 100% resilient. But to improve resiliency uh, over time has been a combination of really three things. It's been about agile infrastructure, looking at the infrastructure, the technical uh, infrastructure that has amassed for these agencies over years and, and its agility. It's about ongoing digital transformation of various aspects of the agency and its mission. And it's really around top line security because each agency is concerned about security in this construct. And so look, what we see happening is we used to talk about reducing tech debt or technical debt legacy systems. Now it's really reducing mission debt and taking out of the equation everything that inhibits ongoing agile um, uh, ability to move forward. Um, really the frame, Francis, that we've been hearing from each of the government agencies is really what I would call sort of the three R's, how they've responded and are, are responding to the crisis, how they're rebounding to a hybrid workplace after and through the crisis, and then how they're reimagining how they're gonna deliver their service or function or product in the new world order. That agile infrastructure, digital transformation, top line security trio that you just outlined, it seems to me if we go back and look at the agencies that were able to transition quickly and transition well, 
They were already doing those things before the second week in March. They didn't just have to flip a switch the second week in March in order to start to do those things. Does that become the core of what resiliency is? Does this maybe reinforce the idea that we must always be preparing for the next thing and not just waiting until it happens? Look, what's, you bring up the great point here, Francis. Every part of hardening an infrastructure, every part of creating, if you will, an agile way to engage and leverage technology, we've been using a, an equation for a while now, for a couple of years, called tech intensity. You've heard me talk about it before. This conversation about the ability to adopt and adapt state-of-the-art technology, but also build your own digital capabilities unique to your mission, and also, quite frankly, build up the trust of those, your employees, of your, of your constituents, a trust even in the technology itself. That has been the core, and those organizations that were already poised, as you mentioned, have moved further and faster during this sort of time of crisis. But going forward, one could argue that resiliency is the new normal, that all of those requirements, all of those characteristics should be there as part of business as usual operations, not just in, in response to a crisis. And I note that you used a term to describe where the government should go and agencies should go regarding moving forward that a lot of other big thinkers are using, and that's transformation versus modernization. In your view, what's the difference between those two terms, Tony? Well, look, you can modernize, automate, make, if you will, existing processes move faster. You can modernize tools and systems, but transformation is a way of thinking. It's the mindset, culture, and, und and fundamental mission thinking of how do you deliver services and capabilities to the citizen, to the American citizen, faster and better? And do we have the right set of capabilities to deliver that? That's what I think technology has allowed us to think, not just about enabling an existing mission, but how to reimagine what can be done. When I think about the VA, for example, and what they're doing, we've been working with the VA, how they've been using low code, what we call low code app dev, very, very basic app dev, but they're using it so quickly to spin up as they did, they were able to determine which veterans, how far the contagion of COVID had hit the veteran population and which beds were available in VA hospitals. And to be able to do that with applications you can spin up in minutes, not months, and to be able to leverage that kind of technology is a new way to provide real-time service to veterans dealing with a crisis. That might not have been in the original uh, scope uh, of the organizations that we were serving. It is now part of what they see as their ongoing mission. Tony Towns-Whitley, always great insight. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks so much. Great to have you, Brent. Up next, the transition conundrum straight ahead on Government Matters, taking the pressure off the General Services Administration in transitions of the future. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. The Biden transition team is at work at more than 50 agencies since the head of the General Services Administration, Emily Murphy, ascertained the election last week. In her letter to President-elect Biden, Murphy asked for changes to the law that requires the GSA administrator to ascertain the election. David Hawkins is editor-in-chief of The Fulcrum. David, welcome. It's nice to see you again. What do we know about how the GSA administrator got, I, it's my opinion, stuck with this job in the first place? 
Right. So this is a this is a a law that's been around since the early 1960s, as I understand it. And the the key um, problem with the law, which which uh, Ms. Murphy uh, and lots of good government groups, the Partnership for Public Service, other groups say that uh, the biggest problem with the law. Well, there might be two problems with the law. One is that that um, the GSA gets this responsibility in the first place. The second that that the requirement is that he or she, the administrator of the General Services Administration, um, ascertain the quote apparent winner, but doesn't really define what apparent is, uh, and that is uh, a problem. Uh, and of course, in the in the in the world in which we live now, with a series of close elections. Uh, picking the apparent winner. I mean, she, she, Ms. Murphy, was sort of on solid ground, at least for the first couple of days after the election, not knowing who the apparent uh, winner was. Uh, so uh, the proposal would be to either define what apparent is or to take this out of her responsibility altogether, set some sort of um, numeric, some sort of algorithm for deciding, or simply say to both candidates uh, after the election, you can do certain transition things, even if there is a dispute underway, uh, like there was, as we, as those who've been thinking about this know, um, uh, you can do these things on the off chance that you will be the president-elect in the end. And if you're not, then you're a responsible person and you'll behave accordingly. So, so this is since 1963. This has only been a problem twice. One time we all know about, which was 2000, when there really was no apparent winner until for the 30 some odd days between election day and when the Supreme Court decided Florida, and then this year. Other media outlets have uh, debated the similarities and differences between 2000 and 2020 ad nauseum. We won't do that here. <laughs> Who has to do what, though? This is a matter of somebody in Congress introducing a bill and saying we're going to clarify this. Is that a fair read on my part, David? Oh, yes. That, I'm sorry. That's I'm sort of presupposing the obvious, right? The only way to change this would be through legislation. And the only way for legislation to happen, of course, would be um, if uh, Mrs. Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and whoever ends up as the majority leader next year agrees with President Trump. Uh, I'm sorry, that after President Trump is gone and President-elect Biden, President Biden is the president, um, to, to make this fix. Uh, it could be, presumably, it could be a, Biden, a simple thing that members of both parties agree on. It might actually be one of the rare, uh, I think it should be, one of the rare low-hanging fruit bipartisan things that a Congress next year could get done. Uh, in defense of you, David, I don't think there's anything in 2020 anymore, as, 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 any such thing as obvious. Um, this sounds like the kind of thing that would wind up being tacked on to something else if everybody agrees on it. National Defense Authorization Act or maybe even an om uh, omnibus spending bill, which appears to be what is coming down the pike, right? That sounds like over the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, the two chambers struck a deal that doesn't at least appear to be objectionable to the White House. Well, right, that's right. And so as, as we're speaking now, uh, members of Congress are coming back, uh, getting ready to come back to town. It looks like the House will reconvene on Wednesday now. Uh, the Senate, I think, on Tuesday. Uh, members have been told once they return uh, to Washington to expect to be here until they are sent home with the end of this Congress uh, having happened. But that will not be this weekend that Congress will be, the members have been told, at least of the House, to stick around for this weekend to do uh, a pretty tall stack of work in a pretty short time. As you say, um, there, there is an agreement on a, the so-called top-line numbers for a catch-all uh, omnibus spending bill to keep the government running beyond, I believe it's December 11th, 
through all of this fiscal year, uh, but there are no details. The, the committees are working as they uh, as they do, and as we've discussed dozens and dozens of times, lots of the low-hanging fruit, lots of the small decisions are being made by staff, by a subcommittee chairman, and a ranking member here and there. Um, that's got to get done by December 11th, or else a stopgap into the new year. The NDAA, as you say, uh, it's been enacted without fail every year uh, for as long as I've been alive, uh, which is 60 years. Um, this this could be the, the year that breaks that streak, potentially, over an issue that, that does not have so much to do with military policy per se, but with the highly uh, charged uh, de um, debate over whether military bases named after Confederate generals should be renamed. Uh, President Trump has said he would veto such language. There appears to be the, the enough votes in Congress to override such a veto. So that's a mystery. COVID relief, uh, also a mystery. COVID relief could catch a ride. Uh, presumably a small amount of COVID relief could catch a ride on the big omnibus bill, but probably not the kind of grand multi or trillion dollar or multi-trillion dollar bill that uh, Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Mnuchin tried without fail to negotiate for so many months this summer. Uh, 30 seconds left. What a, a scale of one to 10, 10 being an absolute metaphysical certitude, what's the chance that we get uh, this omnibus spending bill by December 11th? I would say a five. How's that for uh, <laughs> picking the middle? And, and the real reason, I think, is uh, the president is a wild card here. The president is a wild card about the NDAA, as we just talked about. The president, I think, is a wild card in general about what he wants to do to leave his mark on the way, uh, reluctantly, highly reluctantly, on the way out the door. Will he, be, will he decide at the very last hour uh, to try and exercise some sort of veto pen? Will he decide out of some measure of spite or anger about the federal government to shut it down for a little bit? Don't know. David Hawkins of the Fulcrum, thanks very much. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.